Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. The early 20th century biophilosopher Jakob von Uxkel studied the private worlds of animals and the perceptual differences and similarities between our worlds. Uxkel used a musical metaphor to explain his idea that each organism has a distinct, subjective, and all-consuming life world. To Uxkel, in the words of one biographer, organisms are instruments in a sort of celestial music show of which we hear only strains. In his view, the multitude of Earth's organisms, a word derived from the Greek word organon for instrument, formed a many-membered orchestra of extraordinary richness. Once, while attending a symphony by Gustav Mahler and sitting beside a young man absorbed in following along the score, Uxkel wondered if, if it is the task of biology to write the score of nature, evoking what William Wordsworth described a century earlier as nature's 1,000 blended notes. Each voice of a person or instrument is a being for itself, but one which melts into a higher form through point and counterpoint with other voices, which from then grows further, gaining richness and beauty in order to bring forward to us a composer's soul, he wrote. Reading the score, the young man sitting beside him told Uxkel, one can follow the growth and branching off of the individual voices that, like the columns of a cathedral, bear the weight of the all-encompassing dome. Only in this way does one get a glance into the many-membered form of the performed artwork. Our guest today has devoted his career to observing and writing these interplaying scores of nature, the stories of animals, through prose and poetry. His work has allowed millions of readers, including us, to hear and appreciate anew strains of non-human animals in nature's symphony. Charles Siebert is the author of three critically acclaimed memoirs, The Wachula Woods Accord, Toward a New Understanding of Animals, A Physical and Metaphysical Exploration of Chimps and Retirement Homes Across the U.S., A Man After His Own Heart, A Journey into the Literal and Figurative Heart of Our Being, and Wickerby, An Urban Pastoral, a memoir that led Bill McKibben to call him New York City's, quote, sweetest, most clear-eyed chronicler since E.B. White. He is also the author of a novel, Angus, which is an autobiography from the perspective of his Jack Russell Terrier, an e-book, Rough Beasts, The Zanesville Zoo Massacre One Year Later, and a children's book, The Secret World of Wales. A journalist, poet, essayist, and contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, Mr. Siebert has written for The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Vanity Fair, Outside, National Geographic, and many other publications. In reporting about animals from whales to parrots to elephants to the pigeons that live across from his Brooklyn apartment, he brings to our collective understanding of animals an unparalleled combination and depth of humanity, awe-inspiring sentences, scientific understanding, and keen attention to the core and complex questions of conscience that animals raise, questions of what it means to be human and what it means to be a good human. Mr. Siebert, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thanks for having me. To start off broadly, why do you write about animals? Why animals as, a, as an exciting topic and as a portrait into our, our world and into us? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, I'm not sure how this all happened with, with my career actually. Um, but I, I suppose I've always felt um, – short answer, 
somewhat edified by the non-human. Um, so there's multi-tiered answer to this question. It's it's sort of an antidote to uh, writing I've done about humans <laughs> to write about not non-humans. Um, it's a form of travel for me because they don't talk back like humans <laughs> do. Um, so, but I don't find it a one-sided conversation. I just find it a conversation free of the constraints of our language. It's always about our language and we judge animals all the time by our standards. Do they have syntax and do they have recursion? And I'm so bored by those questions. I'd rather just hear the symphony that you were just uh, alluding to in that lovely introduction uh, and hear those different strains. And I think humans need to do that more, uh, listen empathically without judgment. Um, you know, I can go a good part of an afternoon listening to the starlings on my fire escape. Um, and if ever there's a creature that I know, um, although it's not been proven, has recursion, it's starlings. I mean, they pick up strains <laughs> of, of everything. And so um, I, I, I think that I find it, it – uh, to answer your question, writing about animals allows me my greatest expression of empathy because I have to imagine uh, beyond words. Uh, and then there's the paradox of writing with words of of this scape and and um, you know that's beyond words, uh, but that fascinates me. Uh, words, after all, are all we have. Sounds like a bad BG song. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, we're stuck with words, but there's a way to manipulate them and use them to free our thoughts and our thinking rather than build cages. And maybe that's where my poetry came in because poetry was always about you build a metaphor of understanding back to understanding from inscrutable inscapes of emotion and thought. And that's basically what obtains when you write about an animal um, because we can't actually know what's going on there. But we can approximate and, um, and use metaphor to um, – express what we know, the commonalities that we know to exist between us and them, which is like a major force behind my writing. In one of your books, The Wachula Woods Accord, you um, discuss what it was like to encounter this chimp, Roger, who'd been trained as a cellist in an orchestra. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. And then there's a passage from the book that I hope you won't mind if I read. <laughs> no. <laughs> so in the odd course of my <laughs> writing career, I took it upon myself uh, to look into the plight of the days of uh, captive chimps in the United States and there are so many of them, uh, research lab chimps and former chimp entertainers and actually this all began with a kind of act of cowardice on my part. The New York Times had asked me to do for the brain what I had done for the heart in all my writing about the heart. And I looked the editor in the eye and said, well, you know, the brain is a slightly different organ <laughs> than, than the heart. And, I, you know, uh, uh, tacitly he was asking me to write about consciousness and that's a, that, that's a subject that's uh, confounded many a, a, a more intelligent and, you know, accomplished writer than myself. So I, I said, no, I can't. I'm not sure I can take on consciousness. But I had just read a story about this new chimp retirement home in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, that was built uh, under the aegis of Bill Clinton's last act as, a pre as president, the Chimp Act. And th there were all these surplus lab chimps 
because we thought incorrectly that they would be a good model to help us solve AIDS and chimps can't get AIDS because the AIDS virus, it was originally a simian virus that made a zoonotic leap. So anyway, we had all these surplus chimps and uh, through an act of compassion, Bill Clinton said, well, let's build them a retirement home. So I went to this retirement home and it hadn't opened yet, but it was about to and the chimps were about to arrive and I wanted to move in there. I kind of thought like <laughs> if, I, if, if I could live this well in retirement, it had like you know each chimp had its own room and a dentist down the hall and a doctor and, and a backyard and you know everything. Anyway, that's how I got immersed in the world of captive chimpanzees. And then I started learning about all these former chimp entertainers and that there was even this retirement home expressly for former chimp entertainers. And it's like, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, and it's in Wachula, Florida. So I had to go there to meet these former entertainer chimps. You know, these are chimps that have been in TV shows and movies and circuses as happened with Roger. He was trained to be a cellist in an all-chimp orchestra at Ringling Brothers Circus and um, eventually uh, was cast off by Ringling Brothers and uh, just through the good graces of luck, he ended up in this nice, relatively nice version of captivity that is called uh, um, the Center for Great Apes in, in Wachula. And uh, I walked in. Patty Reagan is the woman who started the place and she was introducing me from one chimp to the next and there are orangutans there as well. And we got to Roger's enclosure and he just had this extraordinarily intense response to me that even took Patty Reagan aback. You know, it wasn't my imagination. She said she'd never seen a response like this. And it was almost as though he believed he knew me or something or recognized me from his past, which of course confounded me because then my mind started to reel back over all the chimps I've met in the past and could this be, you know, uh, you know Roger uh, later in a later life or whatever. So I became so bewitched and beguiled by his uh, beguilement that I eventually asked P Patty if I could move in <laughs> with, with Roger. Uh, literally, I could not. I can, you can't, you know, uh, you can't move in with a chimp. But she allowed me. I noticed she had a cottage on the grounds of the place, and I said, "Could I rent that cottage from you?" And she said, "Yes." Um, she agreed. I'm not sure she agreed right away, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she did allow me, and I, I lived there for um, about a month. And every day, I just walked over and just hung out with Roger. And it was sort of like a realization of a childhood fascination. Um, so I was the kid who grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, the fact that I ended up, you know, a poet who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, ended up spending his life, you know, in the wild, uh, often writing about animals is uh, one of those things. <laughs> Another thing you can't make up. I don't even quite know how it happened. But as a kid in the zoo, I was always the one who would linger after everyone left in the ape house just to stare at the the apes that were there, the chimps. So even in that compromised environment that those chimps are in, in the old inner city zoo ape house, which always smelled like a bad, you know, uh, subway bathroom or something, you know, where the the animals are just tossed in there with a log and, you know, a little crude map out front saying gorilla, you know. And I would just linger there in that smell and in, in that um, strange sort of Rilkean uh, existential discomfort that, that, that the old inner city zoo caused, you know, that I think subliminally as a child I even felt that there's something wrong here um, but something also compelling here because I'm seeing a fellow being 
And so I, by being with Roger day after day, it's almost like I got to be a kid again and just travel into the stare of this sentient uh, being who uh, gave it extra meaning because he seemed to think he knew me. So that was the whole premise of Wachula uh, Woods Accord. It was just me and Roger hanging out. <laughs> and again, an ostensibly one-sided conversation, but I found I found it one of the richest exchanges I've ever had in my life. Well, I based a whole book around it. Like, um, and that was a big decision I made. I didn't know how I would write that book. I didn't want it to be just this catch-all about all my writing about animals. I wanted it to be about specifically – I knew I'd go off on tangents, but I wanted it to be about me and Roger. And when I made the decision that it's just going to be one night, me and him, could I bring back to life in words that dynamic of that stare between us? It's an invitation to a giant act of anthropomorphism, but I avoided that, I think. <laughs> Well, I think you absolutely did. And I'm going to read um, a moment in the book early on where you characterize it. Seabird writes, quote, You can learn a lot, I've found, from just daring to remain within a chimpanzee's stare, far more than you can from a fellow human's. There lies only refractory shards, deft deflections, sought answers, facile conquests. In a chimp's gaze, you can proceed unfettered, toward matters truly fraught and then take up residence there for a while. In a time well before this one, beneath the slow whirling ceiling fan of your suddenly becalmed simpler brain. And I think what's so extraordinary about that passage and the book is how you bring out the sense in which we're already anthropomorphizing each other somewhat. You talk about the, the chimpanzee's stare being unshackled by the kind of projections that hamper our attempts to communicate with one another. And I wondered if the part of yourself that you were tapping when you were sitting there with Roger felt to you kind of close to the part of yourself that writes poetry. I mean, clearly, because the book is incredibly poetic, but it's just a fascinating passage. And I think one of the things that's so, that's so powerful about it is that it shows us just how much these encounters with animals reframe our encounters with fellow humans. Yeah, it's funny. Just listening to you, the both of you, is is appointing my attentions to the connections, career wise, that I kind of hadn't made. That between whatever the hell it was that I was trying to do with my poetry, and I've always had a giant uh, ache of regret over having abandoned. Um, not that I ever have, because I think I've channeled it in, into my prose. But I thought I've, all my life, I thought all I was going to do was publish, write, and publish poetry. And and I defied my mentor's advice after I got my master's in poetry. He said to me, point blank, stay and get your PhD. There's no place in the world for a poet. And I was scared. <laughs> I was scared to hell by that statement, and more scared by the prospect of staying in academia. And I went out into the world just willy-nilly. Um, I was publishing poems in The New Yorker and my teacher kept saying, you're on your way. This is it. And I don't know why. I just ran scared. But I, listening to you talk now, I realize that writing about animals is the best way to – for me to exercise poetry again because of the thing I said earlier about you know, we, 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 we can only use metaphor to build this bridge between us and the non-us um, and to get to um, the essence of us that's in them. We are all bound to each other and I knew that 
in a childlike sense before I came to know it scientifically. And that gets to the point of why I'm able to write what I'm able to write now, um, even that passage and the other pieces I've been writing. I, a lot of the stuff that I write now, I say this to my students all the time. I don't think I could have or anyone could have done even as little as 10 years ago. But there's a wonderful irony that's taken hold and that is that science has freed us up to be more poetic and better storytellers about the non-human. And that's an irony because science for a long time put a lock hold on that kind of – the kind of conjecturing that I, I'm able to do. The behaviorist, of course, you know, we can't know possibly what each other thinks. Um, how can we dare to with an animal? But what science has shown us is – and uh, what's wonderful about it is it's allowed me to shut up in a way and I don't have to say, look, this – you know, I know what a chimp day is or whale day. It's just pointed up through brain studies and observational studies in the field. We see all the analogs in their day to our own day and we see that their brain structures, they are like a parrots even, which is not even a mammalian brain. But uh, whale brains, parrot brains, chimp brains, that they have structures that are – that confer the similar capacities beyond language. It doesn't get to the question of language, that fraught question. But similar capacities like empathy, like self-cognition, um, compassion. And uh, we have MRIs that show that those same brain parts – are wounded in the same – woundable in the same sense that ours are. So thus, elephants do suffer trauma as humans do. How do we know that? Because the very neurons that we have in our brains, they have too and they get thinned and stunted by virtue of traumatic experiences like seeing a baby elephant, seeing its parents called. That has a, a proven dramatic effect. So. When I read things like that, when I find the hard science, that's all I need to do in my pieces. I don't need to scream at the reader and, and make a plea. I just tell that story and give that science and let it speak for itself. And, and uh, so I just love that science has allowed me to be more poetic and true about what's going on um, between us and the non-us and what a gift that is. I mean, so I'm very lucky. Um, again, another impossible outcome for me is I, I, I was not only the kid who grew up in Brooklyn and was a poet, but I was horrible in science. Um, so the fact that I now employ science to be poetic about animals in the wild and in captivity that I only ever knew in, in the harshest form of captivity is all an outcome I could have never in a million years mm -hmm. have predicted. But it sure makes me feel a hell of a lot better about leaving poetry school. <laughs> that I, you know, and when I think about, I talk to my students about this, you have to follow, you know, cliche, but you have to follow your own impulses. And I just was convinced I would be a really boring poet if I just stayed in poetry school. I think I sensed that I needed a life, a, a larger life. And to have defied my teacher and then suddenly stumbled into magazine writing and found my, find myself in the middle of the Amazon and, and uh, the jungles of Belize writing about jaguars. I couldn't have imagined anything more inspired but uh, – or unexpected and inspired. So, It reminds me uh, thinking about you know, your choice to either go into academia where you'd be potentially you know, siloed into a field versus the route that you did take of a quote, um, which I was just pulling up here by the English philosopher and geometer Keith Critchlow, which I thought was very beautiful, which is that the human mind 
takes apart with its analytic habits of reasoning, but the human heart puts things together because it loves them. <laughs> and I think in your writing that in, in a magic way that, that's certainly beyond beyond my ability to even uh, you know, know how, how exactly you managed to pull it off, but that you do manage to put these things, not just the fields together, but the you know, the deep underlying currents of why we care about this as well. And I, I'm thinking in particular of a piece I'd love if you could talk about briefly that was published in the New York Times Magazine a few years ago about um, a place in Florida called Serenity Park where war veterans um, are working with abandoned parrots, pet parrots. And you wrote an extraordinary New York Times cover story about that that, that I think is the, one of the best pieces of writing that encapsulates that quote by Critchlow <laughs> in, in action. Yeah. Um, the Serenity Park, by the way, is in Los Angeles. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. No, no, to nowhere. And I'm sorry to say it was recently closed down by, by um, the military essentially for, for inexplicable reasons. Uh, Lauren Lindner, the woman who started it, wrote me not too long ago to just – express her shock and dismay over the fact that she was told that the facility is being forced to close. It's, it's uh, For those who don't know, it's on the grounds of the Veterans Administration Hospital in Los Angeles, the largest veterans center in the country. And uh, it was this doctor who worked with traumatized veterans but also had taken in um, – started to take in orphan parrots. She one day had the epiphany that if I paired traumatized veterans with traumatized parrots, it might finally op- get some of these veterans who were refusing to open up and talk to um, – it, it, it might jog their brains a little. And it was an amazing moment of recognition for her She because this story I tell in the piece, uh, this is how Serenity Park began. She was just dealing with these really badly traumatized veterans and – they just wouldn't talk about what was bugging them and you know their 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 inner turmoil and she just out of frustration said okay let's go down to the this new parrot sanctuary and you guys can help us build cages and that's all she had in mind and then she just was watching them as they were hanging out with the parrots and sure enough these hardened tight-lipped veterans were suddenly cooing and talking to these parrots and the parrots back to them and she went, oh my god, Like I, this is amazing. They're opening up. And that became the core um, impetus behind this, what became this highly successful parrot therapy. And that captivated me because it, it goes towards almost everything in my writing, which is outside the bounds of human language, this amazing healing is happening. And so what's that? Like what, what's going on there? There's clearly pathways of empathy and understanding beyond language and the vets needed to be beyond language and um, the confines of language and the constraints and the the implicit what judgments in language. So you have this professional doctor saying, come on, open up to me. Tell me what – tell me your troubles and and meanwhile, they're looking at their clock and waiting to just prescribe some psychotropic drugs and then punch their card and said they you know, put in their time with the vets. And the vets sense that. They sense that they're being just sort of you know, used as chattel in a way. And that's why they don't open up. And they, they also say with another human, you, know, you don't know what I know. You don't know. You've not been what I've been through. You haven't lived through the war experiences I have. And then these same vets get in front of these brains, these unbelievably complex animals called parrots who are group animals who have been wrenched from their natural groups and their social groupings and their, 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 their conversants. They converse 
like nonstop in the wild. They have their own language. They each have their own name. So they are isolated, traumatized from being wrenched away from that. And somehow the two different species feel each other's pain and heal each other's pain. And it went even beyond that sort of amorphous description. What One of the things that blew my mind is some of the parrots, there was, for example, a, an epileptic parrot, a parrot who suffered epileptic seizures. And the only vet that that parrot ended up bonding with was the veteran who suffered from epilepsy too. And there was no way for each other to even know that. Wow. Um, so the parrots went to the vets that had very kindred wounding. So this was a piece that I had heard about while writing about elephants back in 2006 and elephant trauma. And this woman scientist behind that mentioned this woman to me um, who was working with parrots and vets. I proposed that story to uh, I don't know how many editors at the New York Times and I always got no, 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 no. And then just recently a, a new editor came along and I brought the piece up almost offhandedly, like kind of like, OK, how about that parrot piece that I really wanted to write? And it was like, what, what parrot piece? And, and I told him about it and he said, yep, go. Just go do it. And I loved his one dictate as uh, before I left, which was do it from the parrot's point of view <laughs> and talk about music to my ears. Like, um, but of course, there's something very dangerous there that that could invite completely cartoonish, you know, kind of writing. But I I've done enough of this now to know how to avoid that and to think to make characters to make individuals of those parrots is really I think what if you'll excuse the pun, made that piece sing. There's a passage I've always used as a benchmark in all my writing about animals and it's from Alice in Wonderland mm -hmm. where Alice in – it's actually through through the Looking Glass chapter 3 and at one point she enters a woods where things have no name. It's an amazingly ingenious thing of Lewis Carroll to have come up with. And she enters this woods and she can't remember like what to call a tree and she can't remember to call a flower a flower and she doesn't even remember who she is. And there's no name recognition whatsoever. And it's terrifying to her at first and then, then she starts to adjust to it. And at one point, this fawn approaches her but she doesn't even know to call it a fawn. It's just a – in the nameless woods, it's just a fellow being. And she embraces it and the fawn doesn't run away frightened and she doesn't – she's not frightened of the fawn. And they walk together for a time in this in this um, just spell of total peace and calm. And at one point, they reemerge into an opening where name recognition returns and the fawn turns and looks at Alice and Alice at the fawn and the fawn runs away frightened and Alice is left totally bereft and forlorn at having lost that peace and that partner. And I think that's a lovely, a compelling parable about the distancing effect of human consciousness and human language. And what the parrot place, you know, sort of revealed is that if, if those vets got to go to the woods with, where things have no names and feel that kind of peace and compassion and, and thus healing. Um, so that piece on so many levels just – it spoke to everything I've tried to do in my writing about animals. But it, on, on, on the immediate level, it just spoke to what, uh, what was happening with those vets uh, and those parrots and what we humans need to – do more, I think, in our lives to dare to hang out in silence um, or nonsense. 
in the way we know it. And, you know, listen to the starlings on your fire escape and listening to non-human speech and that symphony that you uh, invoked at the very beginning of this show. It's very um, edifying and healing uh, and eye-opening, you know, to get outside of our just humanness. That's what I try to do in my writing, knock us off our humanness. You know, we so clutch to it and that sense of exceptionalism, which is so false. I mean, there's such wonder to begotten from understanding that you you too are part of that chimp and that parrot and and a parrot that doesn't even have your mammalian brain structures. Do you know one of the things I learned in that piece is we called birds bird brains all the for so many centuries and parrots among them because we'd look at their brains and see no mammalian structures so we or very small mammalian structures so we assumed they're stupid. Well, like here again, science. <laughs> um, yeah, the question, who is stupid? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Science reveals that they think with a whole other non-mammalian part of their brain that evolution came up with. And it's like a, a classic example of parallel evolution. Evolution came up with a whole other structure for consciousness and language um, in the parrot. And now that we know that, it's like, oh, duh, yeah, not bird brains. In fact, they call parrots and crows flying apes because they have the same level of intelligence as a chimpanzee, which is basically that of a five-year-old child. So, you know, consider that. And that's an animal, parrots now, that, you know, for centuries we've kept alone in a cage uh, and flattered ourselves thinking that they're talking to us when in fact that spilled parrot. What a parrot really wants to be doing is talking to fellow parrots up in the canopies of the jungle but taken away from that, they'll talk to the nearest conversant <laughs> that they have, which is a human being. Um, and then that human being gets rid of the parrot and that parrot is totally, well, if you'll excuse the word, heartbroken. But yeah, and forlorn. So it's – but, you know, again, science, there's a part in that piece where I was able to say, you know, because some scientists had the had the assiduousness and tenacity to hang out in the forest canopy for a long time and they realized that the parrots were calling each other by specific names. And so each parrot in a flock has its own name and baby parrots have to learn all the names of the parrots in the flock um, so that they can communicate as they get older. That is the source of mimicry. That's why they're such good mimics because they have to learn all the names, mimic, you know, so that – that's why a parrot in a cage you know, learning, deigning to learn our language is just spilled parrot. Um, but we didn't know that before. So I could say that in the piece and there's another example of all I had to do is put that out there and say we now know that the parrots have individual names, that they learn as babies in a period of subsong, it's called, which is the equivalent of human baby babbling. So again, analogs between us and them. That stuff blows my mind. I mean I can live on that stuff. <laughs> There's a, a moment in the piece when you tell this devastating story about um, a South Korean 22-year-old elephant who had been alone, I think, only in the company of human captors and developed this technique where it put its trunk in its mouth and shaped its vocal cords such that it could mimic the words it was hearing from the humans. And you talk about some of the interpreters of that event and how they were saying, well, What's really going on there is not communication per se, but rather an attempt to solidify social bonds with the only beings it could. And it, I was so struck in the piece because I'm, I'm curious like how, what you make of that distinction between communication 
and solidifying social bonds that the scientists pointed out. Yeah, it's a really key distinction in a way because it it speaks volumes about uh, the anthropocentrism from which we suffer. So we 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 can only interpret it as oh, you know, something cartoonish or isn't this nice? They're trying to they're trying to communicate with us. We, it's always in terms of us and that we did the same thing with parrots. Like we're sort of flattered by that. Isn't that cute? They're trying to – and there's a sadder, lonelier side to it and that is that, you know, beings like that have been uh, torn from their conspecifics. And so I say it's spilled parrot or spilled beluga whale. I wrote about a beluga whale in the same circumstances as these um, parrots and, and as that lonely elephant, Koshik from Korea. Um, you know, this beluga whale who was stolen from the Arctic by the <laughs> – Again, stuff you can't make up. The U.S. Navy stole six beluga whales from the Arctic to spy on Russian submarines back in the 1980s because submarines could hide under the Arctic ice, um, the new submarines that the Russians had built. And up until that date, the Navy had been using dolphins for all their spy work. But dolphins can't hang out in Arctic water, so they went and grabbed belugas. And they trained these belugas to spy on submarines and retrieve torpedoes. And one of the belugas they took from the water was kept by himself in San Diego, the warm waters of San Diego. and was only surrounded by humans for all the days of its training. And it started to mimic human speech. And it just blew everybody away. It was such a good mimic that a bunch of diver, Navy divers who were diving near the pen where this beluga was kept um, actually left the water and thought their, their – uh, officer on deck had asked them to get out of the water and, and the officer said, no, I didn't say anything you know, through these underwater walkie-talkies and, and they found out that it was this beluga whale, Nosy. And they did all these studies of, of the words that were coming out of this whale's mouth and turned out it was not whale octaves, not whale rhythms, nothing. It was all human, exactly human. So this whale had forced – the plosive burst of air that would come out of its air hole had found a way to manipulate it just the way the elephant did with the plosive air from its own trunk, found a way to manipulate that air into the sound of our speech, all because it was so bereft of any communication, any socializing that is so natural to it. Belugas are called canaries of the sea because they talk all the time to one another. That they went to those extremes just to feel less – again, I have to be careful with these words, but just less alone. Um, I, th I think it's safe to say that without using the sentimental lonely. You know, but they are lonely creatures. They're, they're isolate. They're kidnappees, um, which is what I call the parrots, keening kidnappees um, in those cages. The ones that we flattered ourselves into thinking is, you know, that we're just there, like happy to mimic our our language. So, you know, we need to be moved constantly away from our anthropocentric precepts and and understand what's going on. That, you know, I I recently gave a talk where I was asked to talk about my writing about animals, and it made me think about well, what's a consistent theme throughout all my pieces. And one of the ones I arrived at was the recurring inability of humans to see ourselves as animals and to see animals as themselves, as individuals beyond our allegorizing, symbolizing, and showcasing. And I, I really think that that's 
a hard leap for us. But again, it has to do with getting past ourselves and getting away from our sense of exceptionalism and understanding that we come from the same stuff as all the other animals around us um, and we're bound by that. And um, that's – I don't know. It seems like a simple lesson but what a – but it's a really profound, important one I think. Uh, humans – I've always maintained as an animal, we, our gaze has been misdirected. We look heavenward for for deliverance and stuff and it's really – deliverance comes from looking down and back into the biology from whence we came and that great symphony that you referred to again. We're part of that you know. and to be able in writing to touch on the strains of that, uh, that symphony is what it's all about, what, what my writing is all about anyway. One one thing that I love about your writing too, which I think I know has been referred to sometimes as your signature style in one piece that I read, but that just as you do in this conversation, you write um, and you t- give the reader not just the story and the deep reporting of what you're seeing and the interactions and with very close attention to detail, but you share then your personal experience and sort of how, mo- how moved you are without, without ever being sentimental by these stories you're experiencing. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular of another story that I was very uh, moved by reading in which you see one of these human-animal interactions, I believe it was in Uganda, though correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, where a man was killed by an elephant and then the other elephants who witnessed this took the human who had come you know, into their area and, and, and suffered this death and buried it as they do their own young and sort of conducted the same funeral ceremonies and how incredibly touching this was. I wonder if you could speak about, about that story as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me of something I wanted to say about elephants. But that was an assignment that you know, often I come up with the ideas for pieces. But in that case, I was asked by an editor at the New York Times to look into this phenomenon that was happening at the time, which was that elephants were – all over their habitat, both in Africa and Asia, were charging out of their uh, uh, redowns and redoubts where they hang out and attacking villages and and villagers. And uh, it was almost – it was eerie. It was almost as though there was a coordinated attack species-wide of elephants against human encroachment upon them. And so what was behind this was, 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 was the simple charge I was given. <laughs> Charles Hebert, go over to Africa and, and try to figure out why elephants are behaving this way. Anyway, it's a complex story um, and I learned a lot. It, that story changed me. Uh, the idea, the bottom line of it was that elephants do suffer from uh, uh, not only PTSD but a, a, a full-scale collapse of their cultural structures that, that lead to all kinds of mayhem that – happen in humans when our cultural structures break down and uh, kids don't get the right rearing from parents and they become wild in gangs while elephants do the same thing and so on and so on. But anyway, in the course of just hanging out in Africa, I went to uh, Uganda and just listened to a lot of the villagers and stories and that's when I heard the one you referred to that that this, uh, this one tourist who got too close to a matriarch was killed. I think she was probably trying to protect her young. and uh, But the elephants did uh, from that group gather in that individual and treat it with the regard that they treat their own when uh, a fellow elephant dies. And um, when I heard that and you know covered the body in, in twigs and, and leaves and stood vigil over the body, I, I – the minute I heard that story, I – you know my habit as as a writer is – 
I'm out in the field all day, wherever it is, if it's the jungle or if it's, I don't know, in some, you know, among captive chimpanzees in the United States. Um, my ritual is to come back with my notebook and, and just take it out and go over the day and, and recollect what I saw and heard and felt. And when I got back that day after hearing that story, I got back to a jungle lodge in Uganda and I just knew right there that I was ending my piece with that story and, you know, uh, and, and as yet unwritten piece. But I knew it had to end there because to me it just summed up everything about the uh, analogs between us and them, the, the you know, the con- Lewis Mumford wrote once in a book about the history of the this, this city. He said that the reason why cities probably happened, the first uh, human establishments were that human beings wanted to be near the graves of their dead, of our dead, and wanted to you know, stick around and, and worship the graves and revisit with dead uh, family members. So he came up with the little syllogism, necropolis antedates metropolis, um, which is something I always loved. And I bring it up because elephants are so devout about their burial grounds and revisit them over the years. So in a way, you know, this species that came along millions of years before we did prefigured our own impulse about, uh, you know, building cities uh, in a sense because they, you know, they, they do treat the the bones of their dead with such reverence and and regard and the fact that they did that to a human being that one of their own killed was just to me uh, one of those <laughs> again one of those examples where I just get out of the way just put that story in front of the reader and let it resonate and and it so resonates because it comes at the end like that um, yeah so that's what that story just it just so moved me and then the very fact that the only way that the villagers could get their fellow human back uh, from those vigilant elephants who were steadfastly standing over that body was to shoot guns um, at close range right by the elephants to scare them off so they could rec- uh, recover the, their, their own. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, that's just – as a journalist, that's one of those things that you know, when you hear, you just say um, – Okay, <laughs> thank you. That's like that's like a great gift, and uh, yeah, I knew right away that was going to be the end. But it uh, the story. But uh, on, on another level, level, I was thinking about elephants the other night because I'm, my next story for the Times is about seventeen elephants who were essentially stolen from Swaziland for for a lifetime in captivity in the zoos. And there are a lot of people who think there's no problem with putting an elephant in a zoo, and I, 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 there's a very fraught conversation to be had about zoos and what role they play or should play anymore. And I'm a kid, like I've said, who grew up in Brooklyn and knew my yeah, first wild animals through zoos. So I'm, I'm not going to get dogmatic about my ideas about zoos and what I think. I think we should abandon them. Uh, but, but that's not nothing I'll preach to anyone about. But I was thinking about these elephants and the fact that you know, three zoos in this day and age when we know so much about what we know about elephants and their sophisticated brains and the way they, those brains can be wounded. And despite that, we still – three major U.S. zoos thought it was OK to get 17 elephants uh, for a lifetime in, in very wounding captivity and tra- traumatizing uh, captivity. It just really is – I find it mind-boggling that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service even granted the permits – for, for these animals and they're the biggest draw in zoos 
they induce the most wonder. But the phrase occurred to me the other night, you know, our wonder does not warrant another being's wounding. And that I can say without any hesitation because I know the science about the behind the wounding of these animals. Elephants in captivity, elephant mothers have been known to kill newborn babies. It's very rare that they even get a baby to be born in a zoo. Uh, they have har wild elephants have horribly low uh, breeding rates in captivity. Uh, for years, no one knew why. Well, turns out. Elephant mothers in captivity will often commit infanticide and kill their babies. Never in thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of observation in the wild has anyone ever witnessed an elephant mother killing an elephant baby. Elephant mothers stay by their babies and babies by their mothers for like most all of their lives. They would never further them within 15 feet of each other. They'll, they'll kill a human that comes near, per the guy we were talking about, a baby faster than you can, you know, uh, run. <laughs> uh, but the fact that an elephant in captivity will kill a baby speaks volumes. And I've asked experts about it. And one woman I quote in the piece came right out and said, "Those mothers know this is no place to raise a baby." Um, and she said it without any compunction or hesitation. So again, I just quote her. I don't have to get in the way, but. Uh, you know, something you'd never see in a million years in the wild that happens in captivity. And that doesn't speak volumes to zookeepers. But they know that elephants turn the turnstile. So they're big money makers. So they're, they, they still try to get away with it. And guess what? There are a lot of zoos who are in the United States as we speak who are expanding their elephant exhibits and they're going to need new elephants. So they're coming from somewhere. So you know, more permits are going to get granted despite what we know and um, elephants are going to be brought in because they can't breed in captivity. That's the reason they're bringing them in the first place. The gene pool is getting so depleted and inbred that they need new, they need new genes and um, they're going to have to grab them somewhere. And I'm trying to do my best to uh, put a stop to that because, you know, there's a lot of other ways to gain and absorb wonder without having it to be on the back of another being's wounding. Um, and that's a whole other line of discussion we could have, but uh, which I think about a lot. But um, yeah, so. It's amazing to think of the mother killing her own infant juxtaposed with the elephants mourning the very species hmm. who's um, right. destroying them, as you've written. It, it makes me think of, um, there's a short story by, I think a friend of yours, the philosopher Dale Jameson and Bonnie Nadzam, um, in their book Love and the Anthropocene, where um, said in the near future, um, when most animals are gone and we've engineered new ones, and there's one remaining elephant in Germany, and some scientists have developed a method of communicating its vocal, uh, translating its vocalizations. Mm -hmm. And in the story, the phrase they translate is, from the elephant is there is sorriness, mm. um, so no subject, and it just it, it reminded me of, of the story you're talking about, and and about your thoughts about dismantling the ego that's led us here. Yeah, that's so compelling. I I'm very careful of this kind of um, expression, but. So much of what you learn, especially with the science, moves you to be able to say things that you wouldn't – I wouldn't 
think to say. I don't like to insert myself <clears throat> too often in my pieces. But sometimes the the facts, the anecdotes, everything just builds up in you and makes you state something. And that happened in the 2006 piece about, piece about elephant uh, – uh, called Elephant Breakdown, uh, Elephant Suffering from PTSD. And it happened again in this piece about the three zoos that took these elephants. And I really feel when I think – and it's not just elephants, but I think of it in terms of whales and parrots and many other species. But um, there's the sense that just like in all those that, – that trite plot line of so many sci-fi movies where the alien intelligence came and visited us and we misinterpreted what they meant and and wiped them out. I feel that way about uh, many creatures and elephants in particular. They're, they came in peace and, and intelligence and we, we, we missed the moment. We ruined it. We marred it. We've, we've brought them to the brink. And again, this goes to the misdirected gaze. We're always looking he heavenward for that other intelligence out there, you know, and it was right here beside us all along, and we missed it. We stepped all, we stepped all over it. We put it in cages. We tortured it. We massacred it. We culled it. We, uh, you know, took its ivory for ridiculous belief that, um, you know, for carvings or in, in whatever medicinal reason uh, we're doing with rhinos and you know with uh, the, the nonsense that humans come up with, but. Um, yeah, I, I I feel that way about elephants that we we just blew it, um, and I'm using it almost in the past tense. But their days are really numbered um, if we're not really really careful, and even if we are, their their massively long migratory routes have all been fissured and broken. So they're going to have to be kept in just guarded plots of the wild that are left. That's the way it's going in the world, and. Um, I don't know. I mean, are we reckoning with that reality? I, uh, are we doing anything about it? Yesterday, I read in the paper that the, uh, in African countries where the elephant populations are doing okay, okay is a very relative <laughs> term, uh, but where they're doing better than in other spots, they're saying let's relax the uh, laws on um, exporting ivory. You know, that's the response. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so I. There are some days where I'm not very hopeful, but um, uh, they're dying off very, very quickly. So it's very, it's very sad to see. It reminds me of a, a topic, Lindsay and I've discussed before, which is that E.O. Wilson has suggested the um, famous mm. biologist that rather than calling this era the Anthropocene, we should call it the Eremocene meaning the age of – rather than the age of humans, the age of loneliness mm -hmm. since that's effectively effectively what we're causing. And, and the discussion of the elephant in particular makes me think of the biblical metaphor of the blind man feeling the elephant too and even circling back to the beginning. Another um, thing that Lindsay and I have discussed in the past but of, if you can imagine you – know, I guess the metaphor is only useful to some extent but, but uh, all these different creatures as being people feeling the different parts of the elephant of our shared world mm -hmm. and as you lose these – Voices and these ways of seeing, they're com just as in terms of losing a human tribe or human language, even perhaps more so because they're more different than us. That we we lose a critical part of ourselves, as as your writing makes clear, and that we lose a, a, an avenue of understanding the world that our own perceptual senses can't access. Yeah, I don't know if we have a just as we don't have any grasp at all consciously of the billions of years of biology that 
resulted in us and in elephants and in whales. We have no um, compass at all on the brevity of our time here on Earth, just in terms of how uh, how briefly we've been here and and how briefly um, we'll be here. Um, in other words, it does us good to think empathically in both and encompassingly in both directions and imagine a time without us and a world without us. And of course, there's been a bunch of writing about that uh, now, you know, the, the world after we're gone. I mean, the world's going to outlive us. Um, this thing that we call in a romantic, reverential way, nature is, um, is going to outlive us. Um, the earth itself will eventually, well, it'll be fine despite what wounding we're doing to it. But if we have a better sense of our brevity and of our tie to the past, to biology, I think it gives us a better way forward as to how to be the stewards that we briefly are. The reason I ended the parrot piece the way I did, where I imagine a time when we're gone and all that are left are the parrots, uh, among other creatures. I was inspired to write that because I, whenever I do a piece, I say to my students to read around in many different directions. Don't think that literature is not applicable to what you might be writing about something in science. Everything, everything touches on everything else. And the broader your, the scope of your frame of reference, the better your writing will be. So at one point when I was writing about parrots, I was just looking up everything I could in literature and everywhere else about parrots and I picked up T.H. White's Bestiary and I said, there must be something about parrots in here. And sure enough, uh, there's a couple of pages about the mythic parrot and the parrot over uh, time and in various cultures. And there's a little footnote on the, the bottom of, of, of the parrot section because he – you know, it's a bestiary. So he has – it's devoted to all different animals. He has a little footnote about uh, the German explorer Van Humboldt at the end of the 19th century being in the Amazon and coming upon a parrot that spoke like the, the, the last vestiges of, of the language of a lost uh, Indian tribe. It's, it's gone extinct. And that, that idea of a parrot being the receptacle of a former human you know, existence and culture, the only vestige of it, just so blew my mind. And I thought, you know, here I am day after day hanging out with these, these flying dinosaurs, these incredibly intelligent, multicolored beings. And that, I, well, like I said, I came home in my notebook one day and I wrote, this will be my ending. Like it, imagine the world when we're gone and all that's left are – Parrots speaking shards of our language, you know, like "Hello, Polly, want a cracker, cracker," and you know, like say, and that's it. The the, the Earth is, and and one of the things that made me think of that is that that in Australia, for example, there are wild flocks of parrots that have inculcated former pets, and the pets have taught the wild flocks the words, the human words they learned while they were pets. So. People will be sitting in the park and hear these wild parrots saying human phrases, you know, above their heads in Sydney, Australia. It's just like only humans could affect realities like this or surrealities like that. Um, I wrote that ending and so many people like, came up to me after made comment about that, like the, the, the world without us and just parrots flying around, you know, saying the few last shards of human speech. <laughs> um, your work reminds me as we, as we wrap up to close of a, of a quote by – Bertrand Russell, which is, the world is full of magical things, patiently waiting for our wits to grow sharper. And I think that 
your your wits as a writer, um, Mr. Siebert, have certainly grown much sharper than most of ours, much more quickly. And we've all we've all benefited. I know for both Lindsay and me that your writing in particular has really elevated us, I think, to higher levels of um, goodness and of attention and of kindness and of conscience with respect to animals. So uh, we thank you for your very, very important work. And to close, we like to ask all of our guests. Um, I know you mentioned Alice in, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass already in particular, but we like to ask each guest for two or three book recommendations that have um, influenced you and how you think about animals and, and human-animal relationships. Oh, hmm. You have more than two or three, too. No. I'm <laughs> um, just – off the top of my head, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of I – because mean, I – like I say, going back to frame of reference, uh, a lot of the inspiration comes from uh, what you would think maybe are uh, you know, indirect, uh, kind of divine indirection. So therefore, uh, Rilke's poetry about sitting in the Jardin de Plantes in, in Paris looking at animals had a profound effect upon um, me and the way I think uh, um, and write. Uh, he has a great line at the beginning of the Duino elegies in which he says, um, so how does it go? Who if I shouted among the hierarchy of angels would hear me and supposing one of them were to take me suddenly to his breast, I would perish before his stronger, stronger existence. For all beauty is nothing but the beginning of some terror we can barely endure and we admire it because it calmly disdains to destroy us. Who then can we call upon? Not the angels, not men, and surely the shrewd animals have noticed we are not much at home in this world we've expounded. And I could just say in a nutshell that that's probably <laughs> like the greatest inspiration I've, I've, I've gotten. And then you know, beyond that, there, there are books like – little-known books like The Metaphysics of Apes by a, 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 a Dutch um, ac academic named Raymond Corbet that, that had a profound effect. I was reading it when I was writing the book about Roger and Wachula Woods Accord. Donna uh, Haraway's Primate Visions um, was an important book for, specifically in the realm of writing about um, animals. Uh, Walt Whitman, um, uh, Pablo Neruda, um, our big influence of Elizabeth Bishop, again, not like you would think in the animal world. Um, but there are thousands I'm leaving out. Uh, I'm sorry, off the top of my head. But can I call back later and give you other texts? We welcome absolutely. you absolutely anytime. <laughs> oh, Charles Siebert, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you, too, to our wonderful producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Charles Siebert and his work. Thanks for listening.